Why do we know that when it comes to driving, you have to head in the right direction, and yet believe that when it comes to the ultimate destination, any old road and any direction will do? Turn with our study leader, Dave Wordson, to Romans chapter 9, verse 27, where the Apostle Paul warns us that there is only one way to stand right before God in the end, and talks with us about his blood brothers who had taken a wrong turn. Almost all of you know that my dad was an evangelist, and that meant that he went from city to city. I was raised being maybe in New York City one night and being down in Baltimore the next night. What you don't know is that my dad had a quartet. In fact, I really believe one of my dad's most significant ministries was the time that he spent with my quartet. You also don't know that as my dad got a little bit older, often my dad would have a Chrysler given to him by a Christian businessman from Allentown, Pennsylvania every year, and they would put 100,000 miles on a brand new Chrysler. But to be honest with you, my dad really didn't put the 100,000 miles on because often my dad would fly from place to place while his dear young quartet drove. I'll never forget, they told me one time, my dad's quartet, as a little kid, they used to spend a lot of time with Ron and I, my younger brother and I. I remember one of the stories they loved to tell is that one night after a meeting near New York, I'm not sure exactly where it was, but it was in the New York City area, the next night they had a meeting down in Baltimore. And the quartet decided, rather than spending a night in a hotel, that they would drive through the night. My dad, like a good evangelist, went home to New Jersey, where I, where I was, went to bed, and was going to fly the next day from Newark Airport down to Baltimore. The quartet got out in the New York City area. They got on the Garden State Parkway. They took the turn that they needed to do, and they just started heading for Baltimore, Maryland. One of the quartets named Bob was driving. The rest of the quartet fell asleep because it's late at night after a meeting about 11.30. And about 3.30 in the morning, Bob looked up and it said 125 miles to Montreal. <laughs> and instead of going south on the parkway and then getting on the big... That, those days you took Route 22, you, have to, you know, kind of... I'm not even sure what the road was back then to go to Baltimore, but what he had done is gone north on the parkway. I don't know how in the world he ever did this, but he went north on the parkway. When he got to Albany, he kept on going north, and he was only, he was hitting the Canadian border. As Bob was driving, he was totally sincere. As he drove and all the rest of the quartet sleeping, if you would have asked Bob, do you believe that you're headed for Baltimore, Maryland? He would have said, yes, I'm headed for Baltimore, Maryland. I'm totally sincere. But he was sincerely wrong. All of us know that when it comes to driving directions, but we don't believe that when it comes to eternity. As we look at Romans, as we pick up our discussion in the book of Romans today, the Apostle Paul wants to speak to us about the directions to heaven. And one of the things I want you to really think about it, it doesn't make any difference where I believe heaven is or where you, you know, how you get there. Because I've never been there. But the Apostle Paul is claiming that someone who has been there has come to visit our planet. And what this individual has said is, this is how you get there. And the book of Romans is telling you, every one of you, how you can be sure that you're following the right directions. 
What I want to really get across to you this morning is, number one, the majority can be wrong. If you're a young person, you're really into majorities. You get a bunch of kids together at the football game, and it's horrible that what happened in Midlothian, unless you're from Red Oak on Friday night. As a teenager, you can get your gang together, and the majority believes something. One of the things I want to get across to you is that the majority can be dead wrong. In other words, the quartet could have all woken up. They could have had a discussion together, and they could have said, man, we're really sincere. You know, we're heading north on the parkway. We're heading north on the uh, the interstate. And they would have been sincerely, fervently wrong. The majority can be wrong. Turn to Romans chapter 9. We want to pick it up where we left off in our last discussion. As the Apostle Paul really wants to get across to it that the majority can be wrong. In the book of Romans, he's answering this question, why did the majority of Jewish people who were the Lord's earthly people, why did they not respond to Jesus as the Messiah? The majority of Jewish people, as I've taught you, still have not responded to Jesus as the Messiah. What the Jews do believe, Orthodox Jews still believe it today, is that the Old Testament is inspired by God. I've got a book here. The Christian and the Pharisee, Rabbi David Rosen and R.T. Kendall, who's a pastor like myself, they have a debate where a Pharisee and a Christian debate together. One of the things that both Rabbi Rosen and uh, Pastor Kendall agree on is that the Old Testament, the Jews don't call it that, they call it the Tanakh, which is just an abbreviation for the Torah, the prophets, and the wisdom literature, But it's the same book. So one of the things that they don't debate about in the book is the authority of the Bible. And I want you to look at Romans chapter 9, verse 27. Because all Jews and all Christians should agree that Isaiah is inspired by God. Look what Isaiah said. And he quotes from Isaiah chapter 10, verses 22 and 23. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. The idea of this cry is like a prophet. It's not just, ah, you know, like that. Or shouting because you're scared. It is an authoritative strong pronouncement. John the Baptist cried in the wilderness. He wasn't crying because he was sad. He was very sad that Israel wasn't responding, but he was giving, just like Isaiah, a loud authoritative pronouncement. He's like a herald of a great king that's making a pronouncement. Isaiah cries out concerning Israel. What does Isaiah say in Isaiah 10? Though the number of the Israelites be like the sand of the sea, that's the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, about 800 years before the time of Christ. In the 800s, when Isaiah was living, Israel and Judah had become a populous people. So one of the things Isaiah is saying is that Israel has now become numerous. The people that Joshua brought into the land now control all of Israel. It's a powerful time. And he said that though the number of the Israelites be like the sin of the sea, only a remnant will be saved. A remnant is a small group. So Paul's argument goes like this. The Isaiah, your Jewish prophet, predicted that the majority would be wrong 800 years before Christ. And Paul is saying that the majority is still wrong in the first century because only a remnant is going to be saved. For the Lord will carry out his sentence on the earth with speed and finality. What the Apostle Paul is saying about Isaiah in the 8th century was that the majority of Israelites had started worshiping idols. And they started following their own way. 
And they started living just for the material prosperity that was taking place in the days of Hezekiah. And the northern kingdom, when Isaiah began to, to minister, was a very prosperous kingdom. Only they were worshiping false gods. And he was saying that the majority are worshiping in their temples. They had a temple in Jerusalem. The northern Israelites had a temple in Bethel. They had another temple up in Don. They were also having worship centers under all kinds of groves and parks and stuff like that syncretism and parably take on the land. And Isaiah cried out, the children of Israel could be like the sand of the sea in numbers, but only a small remnant are going to listen to God. And what his point is when he says, and the Lord is going to carry out his earth, his, this verse where it says, but the Lord will carry descendants on earth with speed and finality. What Isaiah is saying is that the Assyrians are going to come down. And Isaiah warned the people, God's going to bring down the Assyrian empire and the numbers are going to be destroyed. They're going to be taken into captivity. In fact, the history of, Jew, of Judaism is that in the history of the Jews, that the Assyrians came down in 722, and they crushed Samaria. They totally destroyed the northern kingdom, and they took them into captivity. And what Isaiah said is the reason God allowed that to happen is that his people, the majority, wouldn't listen to him. They wouldn't turn away from their sin. They wouldn't respond to his mercy. Instead, they had external performance, external worship. And they didn't let God touch their hearts. What Paul is saying in the first century, that the majority of his own blood people, so there's nothing anti-Semitic in what Paul is saying. He's Jewish. What he's saying that as a Jewish person, the majority of his own people have not responded to Jesus' message. They didn't respond to Peter's message after the crucifixion and after the resurrection. There were 3,000 Jews in Jerusalem that did respond, but especially the leadership and the vast majority of Jews living in Jerusalem didn't respond. When another 2,000 responded, when Peter and John spoke again, the majority still turned away. In the first century, about 56, 58 AD, when the Apostle Paul was writing the book of Romans, the majority of Jews were still not believing. And I want you to understand that as you go out into the world, that's still true today. Rabbi Rosen represents the Jewish people, and there's as many Jews in the United States as there are in the land of Israel, and a few more scattered out throughout the world, and the vast majority of them don't believe in Jesus. The kids that I was raised with in New Jersey did not believe in Jesus. They thought of Jesus as being heretical Jews, so they were well-trained in Orthodox Judaism. And if they were progressive, they held that Jesus was a great rabbi, a great teacher, but that he got off track or that his followers misunderstood him. That's still a very prominent view. What the Apostle Paul is arguing, that when they argue, well, if Jesus was Messiah, why didn't the vast majority of Jews respond to him? Paul's argument is your, old, your own Old Testament scriptures predict that the majority will be wrong that only a remnant will be saved. So one of the things I want you as parents to nail down with your kids from the time they're little small is the majority isn't right. You live in a culture that believes the majority is right about everything, and that's wrong. That is dead wrong. It's not real. It's not true. The majority is wrong again and again and again, and especially when it comes to eternity. And it doesn't make any difference what I believe, but I believe that the real God of the universe is speaking to every one of your hearts this morning. I think as I'm teaching you from the book of Romans, as I read Isaiah to you, I believe if you have a heart that wants to know the truth, God will speak to you. 
want you to get by what someone thinks and what someone else thinks and all the debates and everything. I want you to realize one day you're going to die. You're only a heartbeat away. Your death is closer than a heartbeat. And so it's real important what you decide about what the Apostle Paul is talking about. His claim is that God is speaking to you and he's bringing his truth to you. See, in our culture, we have debates between Rabbi Rosen and R.T. Kendall and Ann Coulter presents that Jews need to believe in Jesus and then everybody jumps on her because she says a lot of other kind of arrogance. She's also brash. And so everybody dumps on that. And our culture has this big debate. You know, how in the world can Christians, how can they be so intolerant that they think that, that Jews need to believe in Jesus? It's as if we as the American culture are going to decide how you get to heaven. And I want to assure you very humbly I don't decide at all how you get to heaven. Paul wasn't an American. He was Jewish. He was a very well-trained Jew. This is a Jewish scripture. The Jewish scriptures, 800 years before Christ, said the majority isn't always right. So I want you to get that. It says, it is just as Isaiah prophesied. Then he quotes Isaiah 1.9. Isaiah begins with a very merciful word. Look what he says. Unless the Lord Almighty had left his descendants, we would have become just like Sodom and Gomorrah. Now, this is what he's saying is, unless the Lord's merciful love called a small portion out, we would have all been destroyed. You see, we have the idea, like, you know, I can't believe that God's so mean that he doesn't let us all in. But what the book of Romans has been teaching is all of us are sinners. We all follow our own way. And it's the merciful love of God who mercifully calls out a remnant, a small group that respond to him, and it's a, it's, it's a very powerful demonstration of his merciful love because if he let things go, we would have all been destroyed like Sodom and Gomorrah. He's using Sodom and Gomorrah here not so much of the sins of Israel, although they were partaking of the sins of Sodom and Gomorrah, but he actually, in the book of Isaiah, he says, you become Sodom, you become Gomorrah, and just like God brought judgment that's what's going to happen against the northern kingdom of Israel especially. But what he says is that the Lord's going to be merciful. There's going to be a small group. And my prayer for every one of you is that you'll realize the majority is not always right. That there can be a small group that I can be a part of. And I could be in my high school and maybe I'm the one that really has a genuine relationship with Jesus. And I, and I want to have him change my life and I want his resurrection power to be part of me. And maybe all of my friends are just doing it externally. That's okay. I hope they change, but you're right and they're wrong because the majority is not always right. In fact, God is saying down through history that he's going to keep calling out a remnant. There's going to be a small group of people that hear his voice, and it's because of his merciful love. The Apostle Paul goes on and develops and says, what then shall we say that the Gentiles, now why is it that the majority of Jews blew? He says, what shall we say then that the Gentiles did not pursue righteousness? In other words, the unbelieving pagan people were not seeking the covenant relationship with God, which is what it means in righteousness here. They've obtained a righteousness that comes by faith. But Israel, whose entire purpose, you might say, who pursued a law of righteousness, has not attained it. Why not? Because they pursued it not by faith, but as it were by works. They stumbled over the stumbling stone. As it is written, see, I lay in Zion a stone that causes men to stumble. And a rock that makes them fall. And the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. The Apostle Paul quotes Isaiah 8.14, which talks about God laying a stone in Zion. 
And then he combined it with 28.16, which says, and the one who trusts in him will never be put to shame. Now, what's the Apostle Paul talking about here? What he's stressing here is that the majority of Israelites, the majority of Israelites have stumbled over the stone that the Lord has placed in their path. Now, in the book of Isaiah, the stone is the Lord himself. A prophet Isaiah is saying you need to believe in Yahweh. You need to come back to the God of Moses. You need to come back to the God of Abraham. You need to believe what I'm telling you. You need to stop being infiltrated by all the beliefs of the Canaanites. And so the Lord is a big stone that's in the path of your life. And what he's saying is that if you stumble over that stone, you face the judgment of the Assyrians. But if you allow that stone to protect you, if you listen to what a man of truth like Isaiah, and we also quoted last time we were together from the book of Hosea, if you listen to what these great prophets are saying and you have integrity in that relationship with the Lord, then the Lord becomes a place of safety for you. It follows from that, and this is what I want you to see. Some of you say, well, how do I know that the Lord Jesus is the Lord himself? In the book of Isaiah, chapter 28, the stone of stumbling is Yahweh, the holiest name you can use for the God that revealed himself on Mount Sinai. The apostle Paul, as a Jew, has no trouble to say that Jesus is that Lord. And he didn't just come in the first century with a prophet like Isaiah, but in the first century, the Lord himself, Yahweh himself, took upon himself a human body, and he presented himself to his people, and he lived among them. You know, he talked to them. He became one of them. He rode on a, on a donkey right in on the triumphal entry, and they cried out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. He stood up in the temple and declared, I am. Paul is saying, see how he applies. In the 800 years before Jesus, the majority of Israel stumbled over the Lord. They didn't trust in him. They didn't believe in the rock. They didn't let the rock shelter them. Now he's saying that in the first century, that's what he's facing, the majority of his very own people, the Lord has sent Yahweh himself. Jesus claims to be the I am. And it's really important what you do with him. He becomes the cornerstone, another Old Testament image that the Apostle Paul loves to use is the Old Testament promise that the Lord would send a foundational stone that was also the end stone, the capstone, the foundation stone, cornerstone, and the capstone. And what he's saying is that Jesus is really important. And he's saying that the Jews have stumbled over the stone. You say, well, that's just an ancient debate. No, it isn't. R.T. Kendall and David Rosen, Rabbi Rosen, you know what Rabbi Rosen said? He said, the Messiah is not important to us. You say that I need to believe in the Messiah. You want to use Isaiah 53 to convince me that I should trust in the Messiah. He says, R.T., I want you to know that the Messiah to, uh, to me as an Orthodox Jew is a great king that will come at the end of time that will satisfy all of our political problems. And he will usher in an age of peace. And he is a movement. He is a kingdom. He's a great political leader. And he's saying, why would I want to put all of my trust for eternity in a great political leader? He says that point blank. And what I want you to realize is like Rabbi Rosen is a very brilliant man. He's a conscientious man. 
I believe if he keeps having an open heart and he listens to Dr. Kendall and they keep talking, that if he really, really opens his heart to the God that's really out there, that maybe he'll stop stumbling. I want you to know that he just stumbled really hard because the Old Testament doesn't just present all of you in this church family should know the Old Testament from its very initial pages promised that a great male deliverer would come. Haven't you learned that? I've been pounding that on you, right? How many of you think it's important for the great male deliverer to come? How many of you would ever say, you know, we're not concerned about that. We don't need a great deliverer. In fact, Rabbi Rodin says, Contrary to you as a Christian, we believe that Adam's sin didn't destroy the goodness of man. That we're, that we're basically good. And he goes on and says, RT, I'm thrilled with your belief. And I want you to be thrilled with my belief. In fact, even right, let me read to you. He says this. He says about Judaism. He says the purpose for Judaism is the way you behave and conduct your life. He says, the purpose is not belief in and of itself. The idea is that the idea that there is some redeeming power, that's not what's important to us. In fact, if Judaism has to choose between someone believing but not doing and someone doing but not believing, it prefers the latter. The sinners for Judaism are above all those who do not live in accordance with God's commands. Now, Rabbi Rosen is saying exactly what Paul is saying. He's saying... They followed a righteousness is by, that's obeying the Lord. He just said that. And what I want you to get across to your Jewish friends, and I want to get it across to you, what the Apostle Paul is saying is not that the Jewish law is not good. What he's saying is if you take your Jewish law seriously enough and you really understand what God is demanding of you, you're going to break before God. You'll never say that you've obeyed it. Because you'll understand that there's powerful drives inside of you that are dark and evil. And Rabbi Rosen isn't right. That covetousness just wells up inside of us. That's what the Apostle Paul said in the book of Romans. And I want you to see that this debate is still going on. What the Apostle Paul said is the Jews have turned it all into birth. Rabbi Rosen goes on and says that we're not concerned about winning other people. You're born a Jew. He even says, I don't even care if you believe that there's a God if you're Jewish and you keep the commandments. He says, oh yeah, it would be helpful if you believe in God. But what really counts is that you're Jewish and that you obey the traditions of Judaism. That's the legal righteousness. And I want you to know, you say, oh man, that's a horrible thing. That's what some of you might be doing this morning. You might be going through the culture of the Bible church. And you go to the meeting that the Bible church has. And you do the thing that the Bible church wants you to do. But do you have a brokenness about your sin? Have you really come to the foot of the cross and realized Jesus took the rap from me? And I really believe he's risen from the dead and he really has come to live in my life. And there's a part of me that's brand new in him. You see, it's so easy for us to talk about the Jews being into, well, your birth is what's important, and it's your external performance that's important, but we can do the same thing right within our American cultural Christianity. And the Apostle Paul is saying, 
He's saying the majority can be wrong. The majority of Jews said it was all in what you do religiously, what you're born into, and whether you consistently obey those things. And the Apostle Paul has given us many, many pages by saying, let's take your law seriously. Have you really done it? And we've also spent a lot on your birth isn't what's important. It's being circumcised in your heart. It's believing in your heart. The second thing the Apostle Paul talked about is something that my illustration that we started out with is what I wanted to point you to. I don't care if everybody believes that we're heading for Baltimore. If you're going north, you're going to head up into Montreal, not Baltimore, unless you go all the way around the earth, which you're not going to make it. (laughs) So the next thing, and this is a second area that's very parable. Look what the Apostle Paul says. He says, brothers, my heart's desire for you and my prayer to God for the Israelites is that they, that they may be saved. He says they have an incredibly powerful zeal, but it's not based upon knowledge. Since they did not know the righteousness that comes from God and they sought to establish their own righteousness, they did not submit to God's righteousness. Christ is the end of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. What the Apostle Paul is claiming in these verses is the fact that we think we believe that fervency is enough. How many of you have ever heard the idea? If you sincerely believe in your religious faith, that's good. Anybody ever heard of that? It's the dominant majority belief in your culture. And I just want you to stop and think of it. Is that true? You wouldn't, like, you wouldn't want to fly with someone that believes like that as a pilot? I'm fervent. <laughs> I'm really passionate But what I do, if they don't do it right, you're going to crash. And the Apostle Paul is saying that his people are fervently religious. They're fervent about their place of worship. The problem is they're very fervent, but they don't have knowledge, which only can come as we open our hearts to the Lord Jesus. He's saying that they followed their own righteousness. They've created their own viewpoint of how you get right with God, and their knowledge is wrong. And so he's trying to teach them. This is like a Jew speaking to a Jew saying, your very Old Testament scripture said only a remnant would get it. Your very Old Testament scripture taught that it was based upon mercy and upon God's love and not upon your performance. And then he goes on and and talks about the righteous by works and the righteous by faith. Look what he says in the next verse. Moses described in this way the righteousness that's based upon the law. The man who does these things will live by them. That's Leviticus chapter 18, verse 5. The point is, the Jews are saying that the way you need to live is, here is God's law, live it. That's the righteousness based upon the law. So I tell you, you eat these kind of food, that you love God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your strength, that you don't steal, that you don't bear false witness, you're really strong in all those things. And... If you do all of that, the righteousness based upon the law says if you do all that, you'll get to heaven. Now, what's wrong with the righteousness based upon the law? Like, one of the things I want to clarify is Paul is not saying that the law is a bad thing. In other words, I want every one of you, as you're talking to people, as you're talking with a Jewish friend, if they say, if what I believe, the person that's right with God is a person that obeys God's law, I don't want you to say, oh, no, no, that isn't true. I want you to say, yeah, that's true. And then I want you to say, well, let's see how we're doing. And I want you to share from your own heart. He said, you know what really troubles me? Is that if I'm really, really honest, and I look at my home life, 
and I look at some of the things I do in business, there's been tons of times I didn't obey the law of God. Like one of the major things about God's law is that you shouldn't bear false witness. So you say to your Jewish friends, boy, I can remember some times when I lied. Anybody here ever lie? So you ask your Jewish friend, have you ever lied? And they tell you, no, I haven't. Well, then you say, there's one. <laughs> and then you tell me, he says, that's why I don't believe you can get to heaven by Leviticus 18. Because Leviticus 18 says, if you're going to follow the law, you need to do it. And so the Jewish person is right. Like when Rabbi Rodin says, well, it's your actions. I say, you're right. I don't fight him about that. I say, you're right. And so I've been concerned about my actions from the time I was a little kid. And after I got married, I was really concerned about my actions. Like, I hit my little brother over the head with an electric football game because I was angry as a kid. And then I got over it. In other words, I wasn't angry anymore. When Mary first met me, I was like Lane Mercimer. Gentle, forgiving, no anger. Lane had some I've gotten to know Lane well. I'm just teasing a little bit. And then Mary asked me after we had Jonathan, what's wrong with you? <laughs> and she's been asking me as we grow older, what's wrong with you? Anybody here wrestled with anger this week? How many of you have said something in anger this week that didn't cut it? So you're all lost. I don't care if you're Jewish or Gentile. And that's what Paul is saying. He's saying that Leviticus 18 is an MRI that we're all destroyed. But Deuteronomy chapter 30 says this. But Moses describes another righteousness, the righteous that is by faith. Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring the Messiah down, Christ down. Or who will descend into the deep, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, it's in your mouth, and it's in your heart. It's the word of faith that we proclaim. That if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is the Yahweh of the Old Testament, that he is your master, that he is the one that has the right because he's the Lord God. This is an expression of Jesus' divinity. And if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, our, ba- our faith is based upon Jesus' divinity. Jesus is resurrected from the dead, which assumes his death as well. For it is written, with your heart you believe and are justified. And it is with your mouth that you confess that you are saved. Now, Paul is not dividing your heart from your mouth, which often we do in American circles. In Jewish thinking, Paul's Jewish, your mouth says what your heart believes. Your heart should be consistent with your mouth. It goes together. So he's not talking about two experiences here. That you do something with your mouth and that gives you, you know, righteousness. And then you do something with your heart and that gives you salvation. That's not what he's talking about. What he's saying is that as you sit here, Jesus, according to the book of Romans and according to the book of Deuteronomy, isn't far away. That's the idea is that you don't have to go to the far, farthest heavens. I close today. If you think this is a, you know, this is a, an ancient debate. Every one of you are sitting here. You live in a world. Some of you are more scientific in your bent. So you follow the way of science. And you say, well, Dave, you know, I really struggle with what you say on Sunday morning because you tell me I need to believe in this Messiah that came 2,000 years ago. And, and uh, I struggle with that because, man, you know, I'm really into radio telescopes and all that. 
Well, the founder of Microsoft, his name is Paul Allen, just gave, I believe it's $24 million to the University of Berkeley. And they're going to make over 32 dishes. And they have them trained on outer space. And when I was, for years, like you've all heard me speak about Carl Sagan. One of Carl Sagan's passions in life, he's now passed on. But I've spent a lot of time in my life reading Carl Sagan. And Alan is picking up on that. He's looking for CD. And CD is the search for extraterrestrial intelligence. So if you think that what I tell you this morning isn't important, the founder of Microsoft is listening for voices from outer space. Why? Because we feel in the scientific community, if we can only find out that we're not alone, that there's intelligent life out there, that maybe they'll have the answers. Maybe they'll be able to tell us what happened before the Big Bang. Maybe they'll be able to conquer why we have war constantly. I'm serious. If you get a scientist that's an unbeliever to really level with you, like I got one of the guys that was working on the super clutter, they're going to build it here to be level with me. This is what his belief was. David, out there somewhere, maybe there's extraterrestrial life, and they'll give us the answer. Now, I close with this. You know what Paul said? He said, you don't have to go to outer space because that's to deny the incarnation. Jesus already came not from the edge of the universe. He came from beyond the universe. Did you hear what I said? He created our measly little universe, which is his wondrous creation, but it's not all he is. And he came to earth because he loved every one of you. How many of you have died I mean, really died. You've been, died. You've been dead for three days in Jewish reckoning. You've been dead from Friday night till early Sunday morning. Anybody ever done that? Now, some of you might have squeaked through, you know, where, like, I've been there where we've done it. You know, you went down, and the water was cold enough, and we pulled you out after five minutes, and I sat on your chest and pounded on you with Mary's help, and I breathed air inside of you, and we could bring you back. And you could tell me, man, I saw a great light and everything. How do you know that light isn't the angel that deceives you? The Bible says that Satan is an angel of light. How many of you have heard about the lights that everybody's seen? Well, that's a really great trust. How do you know the light's going to be good? I mean, I've had beams of light hurt me pretty badly when they were strong enough. I'm telling you that I close this service. This is what Paul is saying. If there is some great intelligence out there, doesn't it make sense? If there's this great science, there's this ultimate great intelligence, doesn't it make sense that he or whatever is out there would talk to us? Don't get me wrong, like, I, if I'm in astronomy, I'm all for listening to radio signals from outer space. I'm not against that at all. But I am so thankful that there is a great, almighty, omniscient being that's out there. You know what? Romans is telling us he's been talking to us from the beginning of time. I believe he's talking to you this morning. And I've got a Savior this morning that says, David, I've been at the edge of the universe, but I was born in the womb of the Virgin Mary. And I became a person just like you. And I'm God, but I'm also fully man. And he says, your biggest issue is the curse of death. And Jesus is saying, I've been in Sheol. I've been in death. And guess what? I beat it. I conquered it. 
at my weakest moment, at my weakest, most vulnerable moment, when I cried out, my God, my God, why has that forsaken me? I could also holler out, it is finished. Satan's curse is finished. His judgment against our sin is finished. That's what Paul is saying. You don't have to go to the edge of the universe, and you don't have to die to try to find out what's really out there. The precious Lord Jesus that Paul the Jew wants Rabbi Rosen, and he wants all of you to believe. He wants you to believe in your heart, and then he wants you to confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord.